Jung used to ask his patients when they would come for their first session, what myth are you living? It's a wonderful question to ask, and it has more ramifications than we can possibly pursue. But my own personal response to that has been that the myth I, I live is probably the myth of the wounded healer. As many of you may know, it, that myth originated out of Greek mythology with the wounding of Chiron and, and was picked up and carried on by the tradition of Asclepius. And Asclepius is uh, the one who was wounded by the gods in order to heal the mortals. Uh, was had as his tradition to have places of incubation around which he would draw a sacred circle, which he called a temenos. And when people entered that sacred circle, they entered specifically and consciously and purposely for healing. And then the temenos, and during the period of incubation, they would pray for a particular prayer, uh, pray a particular prayer which would be for a dream, and the dream in itself would be healing. Further, if a snake came into the Timonos and bit uh, the patient, that would be a promise of healing, a wonderful symbol. There are traditions other than the Judeo-Christian where the snake provides a positive symbol of healing, the caduceus for the physician is out of that tradition of the wounded healer. Uh, the homeopathic concept of that which wounds you is that which can heal you. In my practice, I see a lot of people who've been wounded by religion. I have a little niche in the market, as we say. And I get a lot of referrals from mental health professionals from people who have particular religious issues in their life or particular religious problems, and most particularly, those who have been wounded by religion and, and reworking a spirituality or religious faith is, is much of what I do with people in my temenos. So I would like to uh, create for us on this weekend a temenos that we mystically draw a sacred circle about ourselves and praying that either literally by a dream uh, during nap or at night or during the day, daydreams are just as valuable as night dreams. I feel so sorry for that burr-headed sixth grader who sits silently staring out the window in his study hall and the teacher wraps his knuckles with the ruler because he's not paying attention when in fact he is in the most wonderful state of incubation. When the mind is unlocked and out of gear, but the motor is running. So the daydream is just as valuable as the night dream. Many things have been discovered and known in those moments of reverie where we gather wool and God speaks to us through the unconscious. So a daydream or a night dream, I give you full permission to daydream during my lectures. It's a great compliment to me. <laughs> So we will uh, prayerfully and, and with high degree of consciousness rehearse the myth of the wounded healer. I had a near-death experience when I was six years of age, and that is why I am uncharacteristically uh, an Episcopal priest and a Jungian analyst. I would have predicted that I would have been a trial lawyer 
extremely wealthy uh, in my second marriage with an alcohol problem. But instead, I'm priest and analyst. Thank God. I'm like the character in Joseph Heller's novel Catch-22. The epitaph he wanted on his grave was he had a thousand valuable qualities, each of which kept him in a low-income bracket for life. <laughs> so uncharacteristically and unpredictably, here I am uh, doing this, and thank God for it. And God help me, I love it so much. So we establish a Temenos for our incubation, and in this period something is going to be healed, and I don't necessarily mean in any way that we may be conscious, but in those subtle and significant ways in which something clicks in that has not quite been there before, or something floats into consciousness that has not previously been there, or something is let go of that has previously uh, been an obsession, uh, or some final and ultimate sense of well-being uh, floats across uh, the forefront of your consciousness. That's the kind of healing that I pray for for us as we, as I teach out of my mastery and, and you listen out of your heart. The rigors of spirituality, spirituality is rigorous for several reasons. It's got its own intrinsic difficulty. In addition to that, it's a very difficult kind of avocation to be in in the midst of a Western materialistic society that has traditionally honored uh, that which is rational and that which is material. And so there's not much reward in this culture for spirituality or those who consider themselves to be on a spiritual journey. Also, like anything else, when it gets captured by the collective, it is within uh, a few years that it becomes a mile wide and an inch deep. The kind of spirituality that um, uh, St. John of the Cross would write about in Dark Night of the Soul, coming out of the Desert Father tradition, is a rigorous spirituality where it is the priority for one's existence. That is to say that it is of ultimate value, ultimate meaning, and it requires ultimate priority. And so the collective doesn't honor, that is to say our culture, the collective consensus reality, doesn't very much honor putting spirituality as the top priority of one's existence. That is what one does with one's life as spiritual, rather than a kind of weekend at Lady Lodge. So there's not much honoring that in the collective particularly when and our Western rationalism with the well-known Cartesian split of mind and spirit and body, we don't get much encouragement for the non-rational and the non-material. As a matter of fact, in our own consciousness, those words uh, uh, have a kind of pejorative meaning to them. For instance, when we talk about something being non-rational, which is what spirituality is, we say it's irrational. We, in a moment, wipe it away as having no value. 
When we talk about that which is non-material, we say it's immaterial, has no value. And so we are heirs of a kind of rational materialism which has the ultimate value, and that is we seek that which is reasonable and that which is material. Now, our materialism betrays very much about our psychodynamic and development because materialism is a pathological, neurotic response to neglect. What's neglected, then, is our spirituality, which we have, unfortunately, substituted material for that hunger for God. Now, the word material comes from matter. Matter comes from the root mater, which means mother. So this desire that we have and, and most uh, of our, our addictive behaviors and our dietary disorders are related to the lack of nurture or neglect that we experience in the first 24 months of life because of our parents' own inability to be present in terms of nurture, we have a kind of emptiness that we try to fill with matter, with material things. And we've been seduced. We have ultimately been seduced. We are a culture of, of people who have been seduced into believing that the material world is the real world. I mean, it's a really sad commentary. I mean, I think when we get to the nearer presence, I have many kinds of metaphors as to what kinds of things God will say to me in particular. I don't think God will be there with a computer printout of all my sins and mistakes. I think God will say to me, I'm so sorry you missed the point. <laughs> I gave you a sensorium out of which to experience life, sight and taste and touch and smell and, and the ability to hear, and uh, you were afraid of that. You seem to deny that as having any great value to you. And I was present in everything and everywhere, and you never saw me. You were, like that Sufi saying, you were a man on an ox riding around looking for an ox. <laughs> you never saw what was right beneath you. What I'll be talking about tonight is the ability to have the eyes to see and the ears to hear God, where God is. So the sadness will be also in that you got seduced into believing that the material world was the real world. It's the non-material, non-rational world that is the world of the spirit. Now the material world and the rational world is kind of the framework out of which the non-rational and the non-material is lived. Now, uh, some of you may be familiar with Houston, some of you not, but, but uh, you can translate. If in Houston, if you get on Montrose Boulevard on Westheimer and drive all the way out to Highway 6, which is essentially one strip shopping center, and you will see everything that we have invented that will fill our emptiness. and you'll see an absolute culture of, of unfulfilled, empty people. We've been seduced into believing that material will fill our emptiness. 
The rigors of spirituality is to try to be spiritual in this culture. There is no reward for it. Anybody who finally becomes a spiritual being um, is marginalized and counted as irrelevant. When I left the parish ministry, having served as a parish priest for near 25 years, uh, intelligent, that is one who is able to traverse our academic system, one form of intelligence, who had a powerful job and fairly well-adjusted human being, said to me when I left, well, Pittman, I hope you're prepared for the real world. To which I responded impatiently, what in the hell are you talking about? Have you ever baptized a baby in an incubator with a cotton ball, only to see it pass before your eyes in that moment and die? Have you ever emptied the bedpan of a cancer patient who's within moments of death and kissed their parched lips? Have you ever gone to the home of a teenager and informed them that the child has died in a car wreck? I'm well prepared for the real world, thank you very much. It's that kind of marginalizing and devaluing of one who's dealt with spiritual matters. It's very difficult to be spiritual in this culture because it's so devalued. It has no value. The difficult thing about spirituality and why it is difficult to be spiritual in this culture is the man said it's not the real world. Spirituality is not the real world. The real world is driving from Montrose Boulevard to Highway 6. That's the real world, you see. And that's the seduction. That's the sadness. It's the emptiness. It's why I go around the country and people come and hear me talk is they're so hungry. And it, I don't have anything to give except love. So it's very difficult to be spiritual and it's rigorous in this culture to swim upstream with the valuing of the non-rational and valuing of the non-material as having ultimate value. That that's the real world, the inner life, the symbolic. But the problem you see with love and spirituality is, number one, there's no produce. There's no production. I mean, what do you have at the end of the day? I mean, this is the problem with the misunderstanding of Calvin and the Protestant ethic. I'm talking about spirituality. I'm talking about the rigors of it because it's just not valuable. Now, if you're going to be spiritual, then you are not going to contribute anything to society, the real world, that is. Calvin was greatly misunderstood. He had this theory trying to explain why anybody would re reject this God of love, in which he said, well, evidently some are destined to and some are predestined not to. A valuable theory. I don't think it explains, nor does it uh, finally deal with the issue, and it's been greatly misunderstood, unfortunately. But they said, Dr. Calvin, well, if some are predestined, how will we know who is and who isn't? So he went to the scripture, as a good Calvinist would, and he said, By their fruits ye shall know them. That's called the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> so everybody's been trying to prove how worthy we are and how much God loves us by how much we can produce. Fruits are produce. So production is what we're about. Uh, the Protestant ethic has to do with production. So spirituality really produces very little.
And love is not terribly efficacious because it isn't efficient. When somebody presents themselves to me for an analysis, I can tell how serious they are, are about it. If they say, how long is it going to take and how much is it going to cost, then I tell them they're not ready. Because what I do, what we're about in terms of spirituality, is just not very efficient. It takes a long time and there's no produce. As a matter of fact, it takes you from the real world, as my friend said to me. The second thing about spirituality that's difficult for us and not greatly honored is that one has to move out of a mindset and move out of a worldview into uh, a sort of lonely mindset and worldview if we move out of the collective, but also it's a very difficult one to hold on to. I mean, it's very difficult for us to get out of our linear, rational minds. It's very difficult for us to stand in the presence of the unknown and the unknowable. I mean, because of the age of reason, because of the Cartesian split, uh, because of the fact that there are certain things for us in spirituality that are unknown and unknowable, it is very frustrating because that's not how we've been trained. In other words, for the scientist, mystery means that which has not yet been discovered. So the whole job is try to discover. Mystery for spirituality is that which cannot be discovered. And there is a mindset that is not terribly comfortable in each of us that says, you mean there's something I can never know? Or I can't know in the way that I know other things? So it's very lonely and difficult for us to live in that letting go posture of spirituality that says we don't get to know. Also, if you're going to get into the realm of spirituality, then you have to deal with that existential anger and anxiety that each of us has about not being God. I mean, there is within the human organism a fundamental anger and anxiety about our human limitation. The anger is because we are limited, and the anxiety is because we don't feel secure, and, and for good reason. The world is not particularly safe. And as we begin to talk about the autonomy of God in just a moment, we'll see that even being Christian or spiritual or religious doesn't make you safe. Now that anxiety that we have, that fundamental anxiety, and the ideology is always the same, and that is it comes from being human, that fundamental anxiety we try to somehow control, and we do so by building systems and by trying to explain and understand everything, that somehow, we think, will abate our anxiety. So to be spiritual means to live in the midst of the unknown and the unknowable. Now as we look at the 
rigors of being spiritual and the difficulty in honoring spirituality and the difficulty of living in the non-rational and the non-material world, and then to begin to look at what I call these hallmarks of spirituality, we have to realize that there's something about being spiritual that is trying to scratch this itch we call God. That we are, as it were, driven, that there is implanted within us a deep longing, that it is the nature of being human that we seek this undefinable being we call God. And that we can sublimate it, we can deny it, and we can project it, we can obsess about it, we can be compulsive about it, but we cannot avoid coming to terms with this being we call God. Even the atheists have come to terms with God. Now, parenthetically, um, I don't particularly believe there are any atheists and it's not just that idea of, of uh, the hubris of the atheist. It's the, the idea that, that atheists, for me, many times I agree with them. It's like the story told about Bishop Pike when he was chaplain at Columbia University and a student came to him and said, I no longer believe in God, to which Pike said, well, tell me about the God you don't believe in. And she did. And he said, well, I don't believe in that God either. So atheism many times means we don't believe in the God image that we've been taught. So even atheists have come to terms with God. And, and that leads us to a very fundamental point as we begin to talk about the autonomy of God that must be a hallmark of one's own spirituality is the recognition and acceptance of God's autonomy is to make the very important differentiation between God and God image. There's a wonderful new book out by Edward Edinger called The New God Image in which he does a, a very systematic job of looking at the material that would help us realize there's a difference between God and our image of God. That God, as the source of the mystery of the universe, or as Tillich referred to God as the ultimate ground of being, that the God we talk about as creator, that that is a God that is incomprehensible. That is to say that that God is much larger than our ability to conceive. Now that to me, rather than frustrating me now in my age of mastery, that really gives me some serenity because I wouldn't worship a God I could understand. And there is a, a subtle ego seduction that says, if I can name something, I've understood it. One of the things I laugh about in the clinic with my colleagues who've been trained out of the medical system who are psychiatrists, I office with four psychiatrists, two of whom are psychoanalysts. They're Freudians, I'm a Jungian, so it's a wonderful marriage. But I always laugh at them and say, you all think because you've diagnosed something, you understand it. 
And I think many times uh, that, that it becomes a game. If I can diagnose it, I'm through with it. And this is ego seduction into believing that if we can name God, we've understood God. It's a theological error. But the God image is the, the God that we try to communicate about and communicate with and share, and that God image is dynamic, and it's changing. It changes. It's changed. We see that in just reading our own scripture. The evolution of our God image has changed. We see some very fundamental sort of uh, definitive stories about that subtle change of the God image. The German theologian von Rod, Old Testament scholar, was very interested for instance, in the story of the sacrifice of Isaac, that in that story we come to the story with the mindset of God or the God image that has come much more out of that primitive polytheistic God image that says God is a jealous God and that the human purpose with God is to trick, seduce, and appease. And so we sacrifice to God to appease God from God's wrath and to get special favor by seducing God through sacrifice. And so in the mindset that leads up to that experience is I must sacrifice to God that which God desires of me. And so he takes his son up, this long-awaited son, and in that moment of the sacrifice, when the ram is caught in the thorns, we see a change in that now we see that God has turned from an adversary to an advocate. That God image changed in that, that mythological moment. So that now we move from a God that we must appease, a God image, that we must appease through sacrifice. We change to a God that is an advocate who is willing to sacrifice on our behalf. And that's an interesting switch in the God image. Now the thing that we must remember as we talk about God and we speak about God and we share about God that we generally are saying much more about ourselves than we're saying about God. One of the things with a trained ear, if one listens to another talk about God, we learn a little, very little about God, but we learn a lot about the person who's talking about God through their God image, which is very different from God. Now, for Christians, in, in a very, I think, succinct moment, we can know a lot about God because, as we have been told, Jesus is the human face of God. So much about God has been revealed to us, God's nature and our nature in the Christian story, particularly and the experience of Christ. And yet the God image changes from the retribution God of the Old Testament, the Yahweh who is jealous and angry, uh, to the God of love that we experience in the New Testament. And each of us carries around that within us in terms of what our God image is. I have God images that run uh, from this uh, three-storied universe God that sits above the canopy on a throne and is male and has a long white beard. And uh, there's heaven and earth, there's hell and there's earth and there's heaven and God sits above and there are holes in the canopy uh, that are the stars and through which the rain comes. Now that's an image I have that sometimes is fairly operative for me. 
I also have a God image that's what I would call the Santa Claus God, you know, that kind of fluffy, wonderful, nurturing God who gives me gifts. But also, at the same time, in a strange way, can turn and punish me if I pout or cry. Uh, I have an image of God as a sheriff. I have an image of God as uh, all kinds of things. Wes Seeliger, one of our priests in the Diocese of Texas, wrote a book called Western Theology in which he shows several different kinds of God images that have traditionally been around. God is the banker, God is the uh, uh, Christ is the sheriff, and so forth. So to begin to differentiate our God images from God, I think it's a very important thing to recognize the autonomy of God because God will not settle in any, any image of God we create. We can't comprehend nor can we control God by our God images. There's an autonomy to God that scares the hell out of us because we cannot control God even by our God image nor by our faith. And when we move to the radical nature of grace in just a moment, acquainted with that is this idea that Christians and the nature of things get no special favor. Now, why would we do this if we didn't get special favor? I mean, you can test this if you'd like. I mean, go to the tallest building in Austin or the Texas Commerce Tower in Houston, if you'd like, and say to God, I have followed your laws from my youth. I give 10% of my money to the church. I basically and essentially live for others. Jesus is my Christ, and I have a personal relationship with him and ask God to save you and jump off the Texas Commerce Tower and see how much favor you've been given by being Christian and righteous. The laws of nature apply objectively, and we get no leg up on that. Christians die of cancer. Christians are killed in car wrecks. Christians have alcohol addictions and food addictions. Christians don't get any leg up on human nature or nature. We get no special favor. So why would we do this? Because it's our nature to relate to God. And yet God has an autonomy that, that somehow transcends this notion of our own egocentricity that if we become Christian or if we become religious or if we become spiritual, we'll get special favor. Now, I know there are those who have a theology that God image is like what is known as the cosmic bellhop. <laughs> My need determines God's action. And you have friends, some of you may be here, and some of you may be offended by this part of the lecture. If you find it offensive, We'll pray together that it'll be healing for you. <laughs> I will not recant. <laughs> but I know people who pray for parking places and claim that it works.
I don't do that for two reasons. One is out of a kind of superstition, which we all have, and we really are, in a way, talking about the superstitious nature of being human, which we need to laugh at ourselves about. God does. That's what grace is about. This kind of superstition. It's what Levi Bruel called participation mystique. Uh, that is the assumption that, uh, that objects can be animated by our projection into them, like a rabbit's foot, or the fetish idea that the Indians had. Now, there's something about that that is uh, very important as a psychodynamic. On the other hand, we need to know what it is. It's a form of superstition. So I've never play, prayed for parking places because I have this theory, superstitiously, you only get so much special favor, and I'm not going to sort of use it up on the parking place. <laughs> I think I'm going to save mine for metastatic cancer. You know, I'm not going to do parking places. There is an autonomy to God that we do not control God by our desires or needs. I was watching uh, baseball. This dates me because the commentators were Tony Kubek and Joe Garagiola. And uh, one of the South American or Cuban players came up to bat, and he crossed himself before he came up to bat. Tony Kubek said to Joe Garagiola, said, Joe, you're a good Roman Catholic. said, you go to Mass either on Saturday night or Sunday morning when we're on the road. said, what do you think about those players who cross themselves before they bat? Garagiola says, well, I think they ought to just let God enjoy the game. <laughs> I mean, there's a kind of narcissism in us, you know, that presumes... Um, that, that there is, you know, that, that God's interest is in the trivial. My, this kind of narcissism is, is a part of all of us. I'm, I'm not laughing at them. We're laughing at ourselves. My son Pittman, who's the first year at Virginia Seminary, pray for him. He called me the other day and said, you didn't tell me there's going to be so much reading. <laughs> so I've got primary reading, I've got secondary reading, I've got stuff on reserve and the um, library. So I've got three papers due, and I've got to memorize the Hebrew alphabet, and my girlfriend's coming for the Virginia game. <laughs> to which I responded, you do have your priorities in shape, don't you? He said, I think so. What are they? And I said, it's the girlfriend. <laughs> you got the rest of your life to read. <laughs> When he was in high school, he was quite a football player, and he, um, in addition to being a, a, a good wide receiver, he was the kicker for, the, for his team, and they were playing their big rivals, and he um, was excited about it, and it was for the conference title, and it was in Houston, and he woke up that Friday morning, and it was raining, cats and dogs. It had been raining all night and was predicted to rain all day. Well, for a place kicker, this is terrible. Not only will he probably not get an opportunity to kick, if he does, it's hard to get footing and the ball is soaked and so forth. And so he says at breakfast, why would God do this to me? <laughs> well, you know, you can be empathetic with that hyperbolic statement. On the other hand, I'm not quite sure God had done that to him. <laughs> you know, we were down about 20 inches in rainfall in Houston. Maybe 
there were other things going on than his high school football game that night. Now, when we talk about the autonomy of God and the rigors of spirituality, we have to realize that, that our need for it to not rain so we can kick a football might not be, you know, in, in the cosmic interest that day. We have to put in some kind of perspective, not just the fact that uh, it's okay to pray for metastatic cancer, but don't pray for parking lots, what I'm, parking places. What I'm really saying is there's a kind of autonomy to God that we don't even know, ultimately, through our prayer and superstition, what's best for us. And part of faith and part of that letting go and part of the rigors of spirituality is letting go that narcissistic presumption that we even know what's best for us. For I've lived long enough and listened to enough human beings that have sat in my office and told me that the worst thing that ever happened to me was the best thing that ever happened to me. And we're thrown into that sentimental yet wise refrain. God works in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. And that's a kind of autonomy that none of us has ever quite gotten settled or satisfied with, is the letting go, any presumption that we know what's best for us. Do we or do we not trust? Do we or do we not have faith? And our bluff is called constantly and continually about that issue, about God's autonomy. That is to say, are we going to allow God to run the universe, are we going to continue to try to run it for God? I think this is one of the most difficult things about a spiritual journey is to let God run the cosmos. Now, simply put, we have to decide are we God or not. Now, I think one of the things in the Genesis creation story that's fairly clear is God was saying to human beings, let, let me get this clear if we're going to work this thing out together. I'm God and you're not. I think this is very important. I think it's vital for our psychological health as well as for our spiritual journey, as it were, is to give God God's own autonomy. That we don't even know what's best for us, and that which we think was the worst thing that ever happened to us may be the best thing that ever happened to us. Do we or do we not believe all will be well? If we do then we are able to echo with Paul that we are persuaded that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purposes. Now see, that's the kind of faith and that's the kind of giving over to God's autonomy that I think is absolutely essential, a hallmark of spirituality as it were, is to recognize God's autonomy. Now that is not to say that we're passive players, not to say that this gift of memory, reason, and skill doesn't give us some self-determination. It's not to say that we don't, and I mean anybody's a Jungian analyst who doesn't believe in individuation, I'll talk about that later, um, isn't, um, hasn't been reading the material, so I am for this sense of my own determination and my own sense of life, and this is my life that I have been given, and I seek a certain kind of autonomy in my own life. But the ultimate autonomy in the cosmos is my yielding to God. And it is said in this formula that I think ultimate, ultimate spiritual maturity depends on this, that I begin and to see myself and act as though 
I belong to something greater than myself to which I'm willing to give myself. The recognition of God's autonomy. I belong to something greater than myself to which I'm willing to give myself. Was the world created for me or was I created for the world? If I was created for the world, then my job is to expend myself in it, to give myself to it, to live fully. You see, I don't believe death is a release if you haven't prepared for it. Now, I don't know what's post-grave. There seem to be those who do. I don't. I do think the soul is beyond time and space, and therefore we have this kind of Kantian a priori knowing. From the beginning we know, we know in the depths of our own bone marrow that this isn't all there is and that there is another realm to which we will be invited. But I, I think death is not a release if we haven't prepared for it. And the question is, how do we prepare for death? The formula is simple, live. The way to prepare for your death is to live fully, to live abundantly. And I think that's what's scary about coming in the nearer presence following biological death is for God to say, you didn't live. I mean to live, I mean live fully. Uh, two quick responses to that, and we'll move to the second category and subsequently to two more. I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma, the Huvides and, and the McGeehees have much in common. I grew up in Drumright, and Carol grew up, grew up in Miami. Miami's in Florida, Miami's in Oklahoma. <laughs> uh, they were in Louisville, and I was in Louisville. Lots of friends in common. This small town in Oklahoma in which I grew up uh, had dance lessons when we were pubescent. Now, there wasn't anybody in Drumright who could do the dance lessons, so they imported a dance teacher from Tulsa who came over with a record player. And we went to the Legion Hut for dance lessons. She was from the Arthur Murray studio in Tulsa. So here we were, short boys, tall girls. <laughs> and she would plug in the machine and, and put on a record, and then she would put out on the floor these footsteps. Like that. And even then, as I followed those footsteps and the music was going, I knew I wasn't dancing. <laughs> I think there's a metaphor of life there, you see. I mean, following the rules and following the predetermined pattern that somebody who considers themselves an authority tells you you must do is not living. It's like trying to play the piano without making mistakes. You'll never play. I mean, you know, it's in the mistakes that the mastery comes. It's through the mistakes that the mastery comes. 
God's autonomy then finally is about saying that we have been given this life to live and we are to live it abundantly, fully. That's the way we give ourselves to it. We extinguish ourselves by living it. Not just in, in the, the hedonistic sense, but in the sense of the experiencing of the experience. The experience of living. We'll talk about the experience of God tonight. Folded into that is this autonomy of God saying that God doesn't call us to see how perfectly we can follow the rules. If I read the scriptures correctly, the New Testament said, let's, let's summarize the rules into loving. So, to be in a spiritual journey doesn't mean that we're going to get special favor, nor does it mean that God is going to be controlled by our needs. Now, the second thing is about this hallmark of spirituality we must realize is this priority of grace, and that is the, the, the radical nature of grace. And we've never quite gotten hold of that either, how radical grace is. And that is to say that God, God loves everyone equally. And I, it's just a scandal. We, we'll never get it comprehended, but it's there. I think, for me at least, and, and with a critical eye, I think the parables of Jesus are probably the purest thing we have from Jesus. I sort of giggle about that. P.D. East said to Will Campbell one time, said, Will, you're a preacher. He said, Do I? said I'm a kind of an infidel, but could you give me just, uh, could you give me a ten-word or less definition of Christianity? Campbell said, well, I don't know if I can or not. He said, I think if I did, though, it would be, we're all bastards, but God loves us anyway. East said, that's a pretty good definition. You've got two words left. Tragically, and appropriately, tragically, a young seminarian was killed. You all rem may remember the story. His name was Jonathan Daniel. He was one of our seminarians, an Episcopal seminarian at uh, our seminary in Cambridge. He'd been recruited by Campbell to come down and register voters in southern Alabama, Landis County. And he and his companion, a black man from Chicago, were registering voters in this rural, rural area. And they went into one of these country gas station grocery stores in this rural area to get a cold drink of water and use the telephone. And because the black man was there, uh, there nobody quite knows what happened, but a sheriff was called to, to ask them to leave. Knew they were outside agitators, as it were, and nobody quite ever knew what happened, but the white deputy sheriff wound up shooting the black man and Jonathan Daniel, the, the white seminarian. The word came over the TV uh, the night that Will Campbell was with P.D. East, and Campbell was terribly upset because this was one of his recruits who had been killed. And so P.D. East began to do an inquisition on Campbell. Campbell writes, he bore in on me like a tiger, and he said, okay, Will, said, how does your definition of Christianity hold up? Campbell said, what do you mean? He said, well, let me ask you some questions. He said, you say we're all bastards, but God loves us anyway. Was Jonathan Daniels, that lily white preacher boy that you brought down here, was he a bastard? Campbell said, he's one of the sweetest boys I've ever met, but I guess under my definition, we're all bastards. Yes, he's a bastard. 
He said, well, what about that redneck deputy sheriff who blew him away with a shotgun? He said, is he a bastard? Campbell writes, that one was easier. <laughs> yes, he's a bastard. East bore in on him. It came in close on his face, and he said, now, which one does God love more? That lily white preacher boy who's doing good for the kingdom or that redneck cracker who killed him? Who does God love more? Which bastard does God love more? Campbell writes that he said, East, you're the biggest bastard of all because you just made a Christian out of me. Now that radical nature of grace, if you're going to be on a spiritual journey, not only do we get no special favors or special place, it's open to everybody, all God's children. Now, we can quibble and talk about, oh, yeah, but there are requirements for entering in the kingdom and so forth, and I don't, I'm, I just, I'm not convinced about that. I'm clearly not an exclusivist, and God forgive me if I'm put on censor by... Uh, the authorities, it'll, it'll, it must be so, although I don't think so. It's one of the things I like being about an Anglican is we have a fairly inclusive, you know, uh, one of the things that's been said about Anglican priests, they never like to discuss politics or religion. <laughs> Just as long as the liturgy is done with dignity, we can do, do fine. <laughs> So we can say pretty much anything we want, but seriously, folks, the poor reform minister in Michigan who's been on the front page of the papers because he's finally come out and said, I do not believe only Christians are going to heaven. Now, first of all, we're back to this idea of the hubris and narcissism of us to presume for God as to whom God will invite into the next realm, as if it's our job to tell God who gets in the next realm by our own hubris and narcissism. I think it's the desire to have a, an eternal relationship with God is what gets you into an eternal relationship with God. But once again, I'm not in charge of that. I do tell an anecdotal story of a parishioner who called me at home one night with that wonderful introduction you get when you're a priest and get called at home at night. I didn't want to bother you at the office. I encourage my patients to call me at home now. I, I charge them. <laughs> she said, my son Curtis has a problem, Pittman, and I just had to talk to you tonight. You know, sure. I was in priesthood all those years. I had about two emergencies, you know, but I got emergency calls all the time. I just had to talk to you. My son Curtis has a friend who's Jewish named Isaac, and Isaac said that the Christians said the Jews were going to hell, and so Curtis came in, he's all upset, so what should I do? I said, well, why don't you do this? You tell Curtis to go back and ask Isaac if he wants to go to heaven. Then you tell him if he wants to go, it's okay with me. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the few times, you know, you can use your authority. But I'm also not a universalist, you know. I'm not a universalist who says that everybody gets into the next realm. I think just those who want to go. If you want to go to hell, you have a right to. 
Grace says radical, and for us to be in a spiritual journey, there still is that subtle assumption that if we do this, we're going to get special favor. Grace is radical. It applies to everybody. It's scandalous. We've never quite understood it. Now, if we ever do get into our own shadow, if we ever do allow through confession uh, in all of its forms, I think psychoanalysis is simply confession uh, with a discipline, and really get to looking at the varieties of kind of characters that live within our own psyche, then we're glad that all get in. Then we're thanking God that there's no one excluded because there are parts of us that would not make it if dancing on the floor by following the rules were the requirements for getting in. Because there's a part of me and that is unacceptable in the kingdom of God. And through uh, the Christ event and experience, all have made been, been made acceptable. And no God-forsaken people, nor parts of the person, nor places in which we exist. The third uh, hallmark, I think, is this idea of individual integrity. We're running out of time. Let me say very quickly that I think Kierkegaard did it best for the categories of sin. He said there are really three categories of sin. That's the will to be oneself at the expense of all others. That's selfishness, hubris, narcissism. I'd like to do a whole weekend course on this thing called narcissism. Christopher Lash wrote the book Where Culture of Narcissism. Uh, Freud and Jung really coined the term based on that myth of Narcissus who looks in the pond and sees himself, falls in love with himself, is mesmerized and never leaves, that kind of narcissism. It's a misunderstanding of the myth. The myth is about Narcissus doesn't recognize himself. That's what narcissism is. It's not that you fall in love with yourself and think you're so great. Narcissism is you don't recognize yourself. You don't know who you are. And so uh, this thing of uh, the will to be oneself at the expense of all others is a category of sin, and it gets played out everywhere. That's that kind of thing we were talking about earlier. It's the infantile uh, narcissism that stays with us our whole lives, and that is that we're at the center of the universe. So one category of sin is that the will to be myself at the expense of others. An equal category of sin, which is the opposite, is the will to be another at the expense of myself. That's the one who is a weather vane and everybody else tells them who they are. They never have any identity of their own and don't know who they are. The will to be another at the expense of myself is sinful. I think it's just as sinful as being selfish and that is having no self. The third category of sin is the worst and that's the will to not be. Uh, that's uh, suicidal. That's the one who lies in bed all day. That's the one who stares out of a window for a lifetime. The will to not be. It's blah. By the way, the word blah, you know, comes from the word blasphemy. And the greatest blasphemy is to be blah, which is back to what we talked about earlier. Not living is the greatest sin. And we've been given this incredible opportunity. You know, the, the, the Buddhists think that the elect are the ones who get called into the human experience. We're the lucky ones. We get to be human. We get to have the human experience. And we live it anxious and afraid and fearful, and we never live it too afraid we're going to get it wrong we're going to step off of the feet prints that we're supposed to follow so the will to not be is that that's so anxious and so afraid that I never live it's blah blasphemy Kierkegaard says that the, that the solution or resolution to the three categories of sin is the proposition that I am to be myself in relationship with you in the power of the one who created us both 
I will be me, you will be you, we will be in relationship through the power of the one who created us both. Individual integrity means that our relationship with God is personal. It's not private, but it is personal. So that my God image is personal says a lot about me. My God image is dynamic. It changes through the years. It evolves. Uh, we all seek God, and we find God different ways, different places. We'll talk about that tonight. Individual integrity is an important part of it. I was on a panel one time on a TV show in which uh, a fundamentalist took me on and said, do you or do you not have a personal relationship with Christ? To which I responded, yes, I do. And he said, what is it? And I said, it's personal. <laughs> In a sense, another cannot legislate. Let me give you a very quick and important theological, philosophical, psychological principle that may serve you well the rest of your life. That subjective experience is valid. Subjective experience is not universal. So that each of us has a valid experience, but it's not necessarily the same for everybody. So that my relationship with God and my experience with God is going to have to do with my personality, my fingerprints, my uniqueness. And it may be different from yours. And let us be ourselves in relationship in the power of the one who created us both rather than in this kind of narcissistic competition about who's right and who's wrong about this experience. It's my experience. It's valid. It's not universal. No two people have the same experience. They may have similar ones, but not the same. It is a great philosophical error to presume we even know what another's experience is. I do not really know that water tastes the same to you as it does to me. There's a valid subjective experience, but we cannot universalize. And that's, I think, a great error theologically. And to be healthy, we must validate our own experience subjectively and say, yes, this is my experience, and, and that's what it was. Because everybody will try to talk you out of it. You don't like that. You don't feel that way. You can't feel that way. That can't be true. My subjective experience is valid. Now, it may be relative, and it may be clouded, and it may be neurotic, and it may be a lot of things, but it is mine. But I can't legislate it and make it universal for everybody. Individual integrity. The last thing is the matrix of community, and that is very simply this that I really do believe that a unit of measurement for God that an individual is two. Where two or three are gathered together, God will be in the midst. That I think this idea of being an individual, an individualistic individuation, individualism, is a misunderstanding. That we only become ourselves in relationship to another. So here's the human paradox. I alone must become myself. I cannot become myself alone. So individuation is never done in isolation. It must be done in community. I know myself through knowing you. I become myself through relating with you. So the matrix of community is what births spirituality. This may be an individual journey, but it's not a private journey. So that we must always have our spirituality in relationship to community. Did you know even the anchorite or the hermit is 
is in relation to community. Read Merton, who became a hermit. They are always in community. A hermit is in community. An anchorite is anchored to a church. So that this is the most individualistic form of spirituality would become a hermit, and yet it's always done in community. So we do not have our spiritual life apart from a community. Uh, we are fed by, we are nurtured by, uh, we are given our own sense of who we are through community. And a unit of measurement for God, I think, is two. Two must become as one is a kind of idealized understanding of marriage, but I think it applies to relationships. So that here is that ir irony of this sense that we must always be in community if we're in spirituality, and that makes it very difficult. Because we've got to live with those other human beings. You know, we're all bastards, and I've got to live with those other bastards. You read some of the reflections on the monastic life, this idealized life. It's the most rigorous, difficult life in the world, is to live in community, in, in a monastic community. And so we're set in families, and we have to individuate in families. We have to individuate in communities, and community is absolutely necessary. Once again, a weekend or a semester could be spent on the matrix that being birthed out of the individual is always birthed out of community. It takes two human beings to make one. We can't do anything alone. And so this beginning to think that we are alone must become ourselves, but we can't become ourselves alone gives validity and value to community. Okay, in summary then, uh, let's just simply say that uh, if somebody volunteers to take a spiritual journey, they don't know what in the hell they're talking about. It's a journey that finds very little value in the collective. It's hard to do, difficult to do, because it's a whole other way of seeing the world. A great German term, Weltanschauung, worldview, it's a whole different worldview. Uh, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the time, is not such that honors very much about spirituality. That has no pro produce, and it's not very efficient. Uh, it's not the real world. Well, you have to deal with your own anger and anxiety about the fact that you're not God, and yield to God, and give yourself through living to this great human experience. You have to have a sense that uh, this radical nature of grace is that we don't get any particular favor from it, and that we can finally, in humility, say, thank God for grace because there are parts of me that I can't even accept. And thank God, God does. Individual integrity is important. We've got to recognize that, that we do it our way. There's always the best way and the right way and my way, and I get real tense about all of that. And finally, that if we're going to be on a spiritual journey, we always have to do it in companions. Cum panis means cum with panis bread. It means with bread, with whom we share bread. And St. Michael's is one of those communities in which you can journey because it's a community with which you share bread. So, uh, tonight we'll talk about the experience of God and some of the traditional ways through which we, we've experienced God and to kind of arrest uh, that presumption that we can understand God and to rest certain that God is an experience and not a concept. See you tonight. Thank you. Thank you.